Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, we will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. The recent Milken Institute Global Conference hosted a panel with top global experts, including BMO CEO and Group Head of Capital Markets, Dan Barkley. They discussed how conversations about investing in a net zero economy have shifted from avoiding potential risks to seizing a once in a lifetime opportunity. Let's listen to what these experts had to say. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to this panel to discuss investment opportunity for a net zero economy. I'm Hiro Mizuno, I'm a Special Envoy of the United Nations uh, for Innovative Finance and Sustainable Investment. Uh, today we have distinguished uh, speakers representing asset owners and asset managers, and also, I'm sorry, but there's one representing industrial sectors <laughs> has been the, under huge pressure from the, uh, the, you know, the investors and the, the overall the ESG movement, but I'm sure we're going to have the very inspiring discussion here. and. Uh, I'm hoping at the end of this meeting, just you guys feel like leaving a room for leaving a room that you know, convinced that the, uh, this is an opportunity for everybody, not something like uh, you just uh, you know feel obligated to uh, do it for you know the uh, the investors or something. So let me you know the ask the panelists first of all to kind of uh, describe your corporate strategy because I'm sure you know the. I mean, when I started 10 years ago, the promoting sustainability, I must say, like, uh, you know, the probably uh, each asset manager or asset owner I talk, I had a, maybe less than 20% of a chance they agreed with me that the, uh, the ESGO climate is going to be an investment or like a financially uh, material, uh, you know, the information. But... I'll be surprised these days if any of like a financial professionals talks negatively about the importance of the uh, you know the ESGO, the uh, sustainability in their businesses. So uh, I'm sure everybody has the uh, the corporate level or institutional level strategy for uh, sustainability, and I'm sure most of you. And uh, I heard one intentionally or consciously uh, decided not to join the uh, what's called the G funds, but the uh, at the COP26. We had the uh, 450 institutions uh, made a collective statement saying that we are going to make our portfolio net zero by 2050. So uh, we have a lot of momentum, and everybody should have the, uh, the institutional the, uh, uh, strategy for that. So uh, I'm going to go, you know, ask the, each panelist to share that first of all, and uh, each of you representing maybe a different practices. Uh, so uh, we get into a bit deeper into the uh, different practices of asset classes. And we must give the uh, fair amount of airtime for the uh, Julia <laughs> because the, uh, the, you are handicapped in terms of the, uh, the number of the, uh, the speakers. So let me start with the, uh, um, from Raymond, if you could share your corporate, you know, the institute strategy on that. Happy to, Hiro. Th- thanks a lot for choosing our panel. I know you had a lot to choose from at 10 a.m., so appreciate that. 
Um, I represent Pigtay Asset Management. I'm also responsible for the fixed income business. I'm the chief investment officer. But, but I'm going to talk a little bit more broadly in answer to your question. Um, uh, Pigtay, you know, this is not a new arena for us. It's been nearly three decades that Pigtay has engaged in investing in thematic equities and particularly with an environmental footprint. In the year 2000, we launched our first water fund and that was followed uh, soon after that by timber funds, clean energy funds, environmental opportunity funds. Uh, why I say that is that uh, DNA is very much in our heritage and it spans uh, many decades. Uh, that said, and, and to your point, um, Hero, on which alliance we, there's so many alliances out there, and at the end of the day, we had to make a call. And in October last year, we decided that the net zero asset management initiative was the one which we wanted to align ourselves with. So we committed to that. Um, but we committed to that mindful that the path to transition in terms of our investments is also very important. So we did that in conjunction with science-based targets initiatives. If you call up slide number one, uh, I'm not sure who's controlling the slide. That gives you a little bit of a visual. So for us, the net zero path combined with a science-driven, a very tangible way of measuring uh, our investee company progress, it's not the only way of doing that, is, is an important way forward. Um, and, I would, and, I, and I guess I'll probably conclude by saying it's unsurprising, therefore, that 75% of our strategies and funds are now Article 8 or 9 under SFDR. So for us, Net Zero Asset Management Initiative, coupled with a science-based um, roadmap, if you like, uh, and many years of thematic heritage is the way we are, we are pressing forward on this. Thank you. Great. So, John? Great. <laughs> thank you, Hero. I don't have slides. So, <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, I certainly appreciate the invitation and the opportunity to participate in the panel. So I'm with CPP Investments. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with CPP Investments, we're a Canadian-based institutional investor. I think it's fair to say as an organization, we've been engaged on sustainability, engaged in climate for quite a while. Uh, we were one of two pension plans that was involved early on with, with TCFD. And we spent a lot of time building out kind of that capability to incorporate climate risk into how we manage the portfolio thinking about transition risk, thinking about physical risk, and how we manage the portfolio and how we look at new investment opportunities. But our mindset started to evolve. And our mindset started to evolve a year ago, 18 months ago, to really looking at climate and sustainability as an incredible investment opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what could end up being a generational investment opportunity in that sustainability is the new digital. And as we look, the whole economy, the whole global economy needs to transition. This is not about just more renewables. This is about transitioning the entire economy. It's about transitioning every sector within the economy, including hard to abate sectors, you know, steel, cement, agriculture. And for an organization such as CPP Investments that has long duration, patient, partnership-driven capital, this is the type of capital we needed. Yesterday we heard uh, estimates that it might be two trillion, three trillion, four trillion, whatever it is, needed per annum to transition the global economy. It's a lot of capital. So at CPP Investments, um, one of the things we did recently is we did make a net zero commitment. So we made a net zero commitment in February of this year to have our portfolio net zero by 2050 and our operations net zero by the end of uh, next fiscal year. But two things I'd highlight that are very fit for purpose for, for CPP Investments. One is we will not pursue a path of blanket divestment. 
we will continue to invest across all sectors, including oil and gas. And as Richard Manley, our head of sustainable investing, will say that blanket divestment is a short on human ingenuity. And you don't want to exclude some of the best you know, scientific and engineering expertise in this global transition. And it is a transition. It's going to take years and decades. Um, the second is, as we think about building our portfolio, uh, what we've really focused on is increasing our exposure to green and transition assets. Mm -hmm. We have about 67 billion of green and transition assets, and our goal is by 2030 to increase that to 130 billion. So I'll pause there. That's good. I think that we definitely want to go back to your, you know, the uh, opinion on the, how the uh, the collaboration could help us to transform the uh, our portfolio. But the uh, before that, I just want to, you know, ask. <coughs> Excuse me, your turn. <laughs> yeah, please. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse um, me. I, oh, thank you for the invitation as well. Really nice to be here again with people. Um, so, some BlackRock, I lead the alternatives franchise of BlackRock. Uh, as you probably know, we're a $10 trillion franchise. Alternatives for us represents about $340 billion in assets. Um, when you think about what was done back in December 2015 in Paris, to me, that was an extraordinary catalyst for what we're all going to agree upon today, is that sustainable investing is a critical part of all of our futures. I think the Jones point across every single industry. And there's no borders mm -hmm. which constrain it. So we, too, agree that this is probably likely one of the greatest investment opportunities of our lifetime. Mm -hmm. So as a firm, we have an excess of $500 billion in sustainable strategies today. Mm -hmm. If you take a look at the active equity, active fixed income, the passive exposures, and the alternative capabilities. We've wrapped dedicated products to the tune of about $500 billion today with a sustainable lens. Mm -hmm. Actually, the funds, the assets, and the activities that we're undertaking is far greater than that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the reality is, is we looked at what the capital need, and we've all read many surveys and research reports, but. I think what seems to be a common number that's shared around what's, this, what's going to necessitate and drive the change is something that equates to about 125 trillion by the time we get to 2050. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, four trillion expenditure a year to really transform these industries and economies. Massive opportunity. But when you think about that transition of capital to support the physical risk, the transition risk, Actually, we've implemented a framework to try and guide our principles, our approach, but also help our clients. Mm -hmm. It's an awful lot to try and digest and understand as you think about that quantum of capital migrating away from strategies that we've so embraced over the years. So we think about it in really in three, in three ways. We think, think about navigate, drive, and invent. Mm -hmm. They're really the three philosophies and the framework of where we think about the deployment of our capital on behalf of our clients. So what do we mean by navigate? It's hard. Yeah. So understanding what you own today, what's already involved in the transition, the risks that are currently inherent in your portfolio, independent of where they're going to go in the future as managers and you as individuals that preside over these pools of capital make really tough decisions around where they go. So understanding the roadmap from today to the future state, difficult. Our mind navigate is really important. So the Aladdin systems we created, albeit 35 years ago, in what we were calling Aladdin climate, 
is a technology of data insights models to try and help our clients understand how to navigate this world we're living in, where data is scarce, technology isn't quite that rich, and like, but it actually can span both public and private markets. Really important in our mindset to understand, to build for the future. The second thing is drive. Once you comprehend what you have, what are you purposely doing with that capital? And in our mind, it's looking for value. This isn't a, a philanthropic activity. This is an activity whereby our clients are looking for return. And so, you know, as we think about how you do that, you know, and most recently you've probably seen in the press our partnership with the French and German governments with regard to climate finance partnership. Mm -hmm. This is a public-private activity whereby we're bringing much-needed capital now to emerging economies. This is not just a developed world issue, it's actually an emerging world issue too. But bringing in public and private capital together mm -hmm. to create that catalytic capital and even first laws to encourage the emerging economies and investors in emerging economies to embrace the opportunity we think is really important. And last but not least, invent. There's a tremendous amount of innovation that's happening right now. How do you take that capital and allow for its expansion and for it to now transform industry in a going forward state? More recently, we did decarbonization partners with Tomasek, which was really designed to invest in late-stage venture early stage growth, companies with proven technologies, but quite frankly, there was a massive capital shortfall. So when we think about the opportunity set, as we apply the lens of navigate, drive and invent, actually allows us to develop not just product and capabilities and solutions, mm -hmm. but hopefully create guideposts too for our clients as they're transitioning to capital. But I would agree, and we'll probably have a lot of agreement here today, mm -hmm. this is an extraordinary opportunity. We just need to be patient and thoughtful about that, how that approach happens. Mm -hmm. I see. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Juan. So uh, maybe done first, and then we'll wait for you to make. <laughs> I was working it all down the last yeah. one to speak, not much right. for you to say. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't work if you're not the last right. one. Um, so Dan Barclay, uh, I run the Capital Markets Division for Bank of Montreal, the eighth largest bank in North America. Um, for us, we declared net zero last year and we joined GFANS. And fundamentally, it was driven by our purpose, right? To boldly grow the good in business and life. Uh, I think when we have focused on this, uh, very similar to what John said, we have a very similar philosophy. Uh, the goal is how do we arrive at a just transition? And that just transition is transitioning from the old, building infrastructure to get to the new. Um, a, a couple of things that we focus on that maybe would be additive to some of the conversation, our alignment's high with what you've heard. Um, the first is a conversation around incentive models uh, as opposed to penalty systems. Uh, penalty systems have slow flywheels for change and incentive systems create rapid change. And to the conversation around opportunity, opportunity really is a flywheel for change. And so if you have the opportunity to do new and better things, it happens to work for the environment and you can create a return, that flywheel is incredibly powerful. Uh, what we've been watching in the last couple of years is that flywheel in action. Uh, we've seen more change around climate in the last 12 months than we probably saw in the last 20 years before that. And that flywheel is going to continue. Um, the second thing we're very focused today is on demand versus supply. Much of the conversation is on the supply side to climate. Uh, demand is actually where we have our biggest problem. Uh, we've watched a bunch of events in the last three months uh, that showed us political expediency comes at the expense of climate. And so, you know, things like a high carbon price. That's probably the fastest catalyst in the world uh, to climate change. 
and yet we're pushing climate or carbon price down as hard as we can today. Uh, it's actually backwards to uh, the transition. Um, you've heard from everyone up here, uh, the opportunity is in the amount of changes coming. Uh, whether we use 120, 200 trillion, it doesn't really matter what number you use. It's the biggest movement of capital uh, in our lifetimes. And that big movement of capital uh, will come with some risks, it will come with some change, it will come with some loss, quite frankly, whenever we innovate. Uh, but that dynamic of moving money uh, is really what the BMO philosophy in, which is our job is to give our clients the best advice we can. And so the dynamic that we work today on is how do we help our clients transition because it's the clients that actually transition. Banks are a facilitator of action. We're not the principal. We're not the regulator. Our job is to facilitate change. Um, those are really the approaches that we've been looking at at BMO. Uh, like others, uh, I often talk to my teams about uh, this is the biggest opportunity I've ever seen in my career. Uh, and it's really that movement of money, that creation of opportunity, the ability to think different, act on change, uh, is a catalyst. Um, I think I would add one thing, which will come up, I think, through this. Some of the stakeholders we have is our own employees uh, and the communities we live in. And the dynamic today is that is actually a big driver of change, right? For us as a bank, and, you know, there's lots of, uh, uh, I get to say we're attacked as a big bad guy uh, for now. Uh, but that dynamic today uh, is we have a role and an obligation to our stakeholders uh, to facilitate the change, but it's also part of the positive flywheel. Uh, the more we embrace that change, the more our stakeholders are engaged, the more employees are engaged, the more change we can actually make happen. Thank you. I think there's an agreement that this is the, uh, the I mean, near zero transition is going to provide the, uh, the probably the best investment opportunity in our lifetime to the, uh, the most investors. Uh, and then uh, when the ESG movement started about 10 years ago, it's all about risk, how to mitigate the negative externality. Right. And uh, I think our discussion has been shifting over, shifting over time to more as an opportunity-driven uh, discussion. Uh, so, uh, but in the meantime, we also need to address the risk inherent in some industries, like you know, oil and gas. And then uh, I think we passed the other phase of like uh, you know the talking all about the divestment because the, uh, the if you re reflect the five years ago when we talk about the ESG, first question is about divestment. Do you sh you should divest from the oil and gas industry or not? But we hear very much less about the divestment as the, uh, the uh, appropriate strategy. So uh, I hope you feel better now, but the, uh, I just wanted to <laughs> hear from the industrial sector that the, uh, you have been under significant amount of pressure from the investor to, to tra you know, transform your business model. I'm, I'm really respect that the, uh, you know, the BP came up with a very aggressive and audacious you know, the, uh, uh, the strategies, but share with us. What's your frustration <laughs> about the, uh, the way the uh, investors of finance you know, treat your, your industry? Okay, thanks, Hero, for that. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty direct question. Yes. Um, so as the early industry representative, I'm going to try to do a good job at defending the category. Uh, before I actually go to your question, maybe I can spend also two minutes trying to say what we as BP spend are as much to do. time as you want, you know. <laughs> and then I can actually talk to how we're actually engaging with the financial sector as well. Sure, absolutely. So I think you mentioned risk for the oil and gas industry. Similar to what everybody else said, I think we see it as a tremendous opportunity, right? We can talk to 3.5 trillion a year to 2050. Um, if you look at energy outlooks, and we spent a lot of time modeling energy outlooks, it's a monumental transition. We are seeing 
demand and the energy system shifting. So if you put yourself in Paris aligned scenarios, you could see oil indeed reducing from 100 million barrels a day today to something like 25 to 50 million barrels a day in 2050, depending on which scenario you take. And renewable penetration actually having to go to something like 600 to 700 gigawatts deployed every year to actually get to a net zero scenario. Mm -hmm. The same time we see like a pretty significant technology challenge. When we look at the world, we say basically you have two thirds of energy demand that you can electrify. The rest can't be electrified. And we mentioned hard to evade sectors. And so we will need all technologies to come into play. We need CCUS, we need bioenergy, be it biofuels, biogas, we need hydrogen to come into play. So when you look at that amount of complexity and change that needs to happen and the integration of all these technologies, we take a step back and we say, wow, with the capabilities and the global scope that we have, we are in a privileged position to actually do the right thing in terms of energy transition, but also capture the opportunity that comes with it. So two years back, basically, when our new CEO started, Bernard Looney, in 2020, uh, we announced a new ambition, which is to be net zero by 2050 or sooner. Um, we announced a new strategy, which basically has three core parts to it. Uh, resilient hydrocarbons, because we will continue to need hydrocarbons in the system even in 2050. Um, convenience and mobility, and the transformation of mobility towards the future, and low carbon energy. With integration, and in particular our trading activity, that allows us to bind everything together to bring cleaner, reliable, affordable energy solutions to our customers. And two years down the road, a few months back, we actually accelerated that strategy. We accelerated in terms of investments. We announced that we're actually going to be allocating 40% of our capex in 2025 to what we call transition growth engines. And that number goes up to 50% by 2030. We accelerated aims. So we're now going to be, I think we're the only oil and gas company who aims to be net zero on operations, upstream production, and traded energy products. And we accelerated in terms of execution and progress. So we're very much in action and, uh, and very much aiming to capture the opportunity. Now, I'm not sure whether I would call it a frustration. I think uh, we've been throughout this process engaging very significantly with the financial sector. Because I think if there's one thing that we understand, it is that if we want to be successful through this journey and have a chance to get to net zero, it basically takes every single stakeholder in the system, be it energy system or broadly economic system, to actually participate. And we acknowledge that our, our journey is not an easy journey, so we've been engaging with investors on an ongoing basis. We've just published our net zero ambition report which we're putting out a vote at our next AGM. Um, and, uh, and we continue to engage, to gather feedback, learn from our investors, and also to a certain extent, educate our investors uh, on the complexity of the energy transition, the pathways associated to it, which if you are familiar to oil and gas, there is no SBTI type pathway as an example. So I, I wouldn't talk about frustration, I would talk about a dialogue and, uh, and a need to work together um, as we go through the journey. Thank you. I mean, well, I, I, I think that the, uh, you know, the investor has been demanding a lot from the, uh, the, their portfolio companies. And uh, we have been asking them to disclose more and more information. And uh, my 
question to the other panelists representing the financial institution of the uh, the asset owner is, you know, when you hear from the company like a BP, they are you know trying to transform their business portfolio and they are announcing a lot of new investment and now they are doing more disclosure, uh, you know, using TCFD and now we are talking about the uh, the IFRS. They are trying to establish a new uh, disclosure standard. And then there has been the uh, some of like a you know kind of like it's a bit of a cynicism, but the uh, the kind of skeptics in the, within the industrial uh, you know the uh, leaders like the more they disclose, the less capital they ended up getting because they actually seems like they are not attracting the capital into their new uh, project. So. Uh, from everybody's perspective, from the investor's perspective or the financier's perspective, you know what you are looking for, and uh, you know when the uh, the BP or the other uh, uh, you know the carbon-heavy industry shows new strategies, you know what the real opportunities and what kind of tools you have to uh, support their transition and make your investment opportunity too. So, John, um, you want to start? Sure, sure, happy to start. And um, it's important that this is a transition. And the first thing we look for is the plan. And we often say that with a net zero commitment, a 2050 net zero commitment, really you know, all these companies, us included, we're signing up to run a two hour marathon. And the first step we gotta do is actually now figure out how we're gonna do that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great ambition it's, you know, and, and we wanna get there, but we got a lot of training to be able to run that two-hour marathon. And so what we look for as an investor is the plan um, and putting in place a, a credible plan. Mm -hmm. Now, we also as an investor respect that it is the role of the board of directors and management to put in that plan. And us as investors will be transparent and we'll share our expectations. But the strategy is owned by the board and the management team. If it's a private company, then we could have more influence. If it's a public company, if we're not satisfied that the plan is credible, um, then we, we will potentially sell, sell our, our, our position. But as an engaged investor, a long-term investor, we look for the plan and, and willing to engage uh, with companies. The other point, and I think you were touching on this, is around disclosure. And one of the, the challenges we have in our portfolio is even trying to measure the carbon intensity of our portfolio. And today, only, we only get information on about 35% of the issuers in our portfolio. The rest of them, uh, we proxy, we estimate to get a total portfolio estimate of the carbon intensity. And it's more volatile than I would have expected because every year and more companies are coming out and providing actual information and we're seeing restatement and revisions to estimates. So we are on this journey. Uh, it is a transition. And I think for us right now as investors, we're just really trying to engage with the, the board and the management team of the companies we invest in. Mm. I'm going to ask the same question to everybody, but the... Uh John, the the person, as you said, is a journey, and you have to, you have to learn. I mean, your team have to learn how to you know the properly announce the uh, you know the opportunities in terms of the climate and also the risk of the climate change. Um, how do you are you building your team? I mean, uh, you know, how many professional you hired? Or I just wanted. I'm very interested in like how everybody is building up their capability to do that that job properly. Yeah, maybe make a couple comments there. And we have we have a couple teams. We we have one one of the things that we did about a year ago from an investing side is we actually combined our conventional energy team with our renewable energy team, mm -hmm. and we call it our sustainable energies team with the mandate to invest across the entire 
waterfront of, of energy. We also have a team called Sustainable Investing. And, and this team is actually there to support all the investors across the organization. Mm -hmm. Because as I said, th this is actually an economy-wide transition. It's not just about energy. And so they support all the investors across the, the organization. Mm -hmm. And part of the goal of that team is, is not only to provide the support for new investment opportunities and on the portfolio, but we also have to improve the literacy and the fluency within the organization. We actually have to bring up the understanding of everybody in the organization because this is something that touches not only how we work internally, but every investment. Mm, I see. So, Raymond, what about big Dan? I've, I've got to pick up, uh, the, take the baton from John on engagement, you know, a subject I'm passionate about and our group is passionate about. With, with transition, engagement is critical. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that I think one of the biggest fallacies in the broader marketplace right now is to associate engagement with the equity business because we think of shareholder voting, proxy voting. Now, of course, that has a relevance and that has an ability to impact a great influence. But we forget a huge part um, of the financing equation, and that's the bond market. And of course, I'm biased, right, as the CIO of fixed income. <laughs> but it's so true. If you think about the regularity of bond issuance, these bonds are rolling, all, rolling off all the time. These issuers keep coming back to the market. And in size, the, the potential to influence via cost of capital and the regularity of that interaction is absolutely massive, Hero, right? So for me, you know, the, real, the, the big point I'd really like to impress upon um, you is that um, engagement has to have a duality. It needs to have an equity and a fixed income dimension. <clears throat> and that's how we approach it. You know, every year um, we, we typically engage between two and 300 companies um, at Pictet Asset Management. I don't know if that sounds like a large or small number. It's not meant to be any kind of number. It's, it's a number which we feel we can exert influence on. The engagement has to be targeted in order for it to have impact. So you've got to pick your spots. Incidentally, we've picked our spots on, around axes of climate, mm. water, nutrition, and long-termism. So we, we engage on those axes, and we engage with an equity and a debt lens, because that's the most powerful way to do it. And of course, that also opens up other considerations like uh, sustainability link bonds, green bonds, and so on. But perhaps we cover that later on. I, yeah. I, I pass it back to you. Well, actually, we can cover it now because the, uh, <laughs> as you are leading the fixed income effort of the FICTE, you know, the green bond has been the, uh, you know, the one of the instruments we believe that can promote, you know, the your transition into the uh, sustainable and the green, you know, the uh, project. Uh, do you think the green bond, I mean, in terms of the size, it's growing, but do you think the green bond will continue to be one, uh, you know, the, you know, effective uh, product for, uh, you know, corporate to raise the money directed into those on a green project? And also, do you think it will remain attractive for the investors? I mean, yield hasn't been differentiated themselves, but what's your view on that? It can be. Yeah. Um, and I know that sounds like a cautious response, but it, and it goes beyond green bonds. You know, let's talk about ESG label bonds to encompass green social and sustainability link bonds, right? So ESG bonds, what's the role of ESG bonds? For me, it's not an either or. Um, it actually goes hand in hand with engagement. If you think about it, when an issuer is, in, in, is issuing an ESG bond, that bond very often comes at a premium, uh, what we call a greenium, 
That means it comes at a lower yield than the conventional bond curve. Is that lower yield justified? Hero, to your point, what's the use of those proceeds? That, for me, is absolutely critical to investigate more deeply. What percentage of those funds are going to be deployed to the project? Are those funds going to be used for a CapEx role or actually for a brand new project to decarbonize? Those are critical questions which my credit analyst team and our equity um, teams have to dig a lot, a lot deeper on. So the, answer, the reason for my tentative answer is it can be, but it has to be done in unison with engagement. It's not an either or. And of course, there's almost a paradox. If you have a dodgy issuer, um, for want of a better word, but who happens to get an ESG bond off, how do you reconcile that, right? Mm. You need to be able to reconcile the use of proceeds at the sustainability-linked bond with good behavior and a transition path which is credible at the issuer level. The two have to go hand in hand. Yeah. Dan, do you want to make a comment on the green bond? Um, I was going to go back a little bit to your uh, uh, information sets around mm -hmm. uh, climate. Um, I think the dynamic today is, while it creates, I think the example used was a bit of uncertainty, uh, what we really need is transparency and comparability. Mm. And today we don't have that. And so the investments that are out there today, like when we put out our uh, high emitter climate standards that we put out and the reduction targets we had, we actually say right in there that it's going to change mm -hmm. because the data today isn't very good. Uh, John talked about 35%. I don't think we think we're that high uh, mm -hmm. across our portfolio. And so that dynamic is it's going to change over time. But if you don't actually lead with what you can see, it's very hard for it then to change to something better. Mm. And so that process of innovation is there. Uh, unfortunately, when you convert that back into the risk spectrum, i.e. the investing spectrum, uh, your challenge is with some clarity, but not full clarity, you get the perception of more risk. Mm. And so the irony is some people leading on the data side are actually going to create more risk because they're actually showing people what that uncertainty looks like. Um, the last thing on comparability, uh, over time what we need to see is pace of performance mm -hmm. as opposed to a disclosure. So today all we are is disclosing. What we're not doing now is a relative performance discussion or absolute or relative. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's where these uh, tracking standards are going to be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Three years out, five years out, ten years out, where you can actually track the performance of an entity as mm -hmm. it went through it. Mm -hmm. um, to your point on green bonds, green bonds are a very effective tool. Uh, some people call it greenwashing. doesn't really matter to me. Yeah. Really what it is is it's a company's commitment to make change happen. Mm -hmm. right? And it's a tool to give them that commitment. You have the same thing on sustainability and the rest. Uh, the challenge that I think I see most today is there is no real risk transfer mm -hmm. and there's no real risk opportunity. The greemium is infinitesimally small. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, what's the real incentive to change out of the instrument? Mm -hmm. And you can argue on the bond side there shouldn't be, right? It's a credit instrument as opposed to that. On the equity side, you can argue it's some. But that dynamic of what investors really want and how much risk will they take to get a better outcome. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, I think, a really interesting question for the next couple of years. I, I, that's, I think that's a very important point. I think, you know, green premium, I, I always, you know, they think it's meant to be there because for the investor who really wanted to precisely direct their capital into yeah. those, you know, green strategies or green projects, they should pay for the premium for that. But the, uh, the problem is, like John, uh, like, you know, like John, I used to run GPIF, where the, we are kind of like uh, operating in a very tight, like a fiduciary duty requirement. 
And as soon as we saw the observe the green premium kicking in, we need to withdraw from that market. So uh, that's the kind of the dilemma we are facing. But the, uh, I, I really want to ask the Edwin a question. But before the John, um, how do you deal with the green premium or that kind of like a sustainability premium if we kick into the pricing? As a fiduciary, it, well, I, I think I think you touched on it that we at CPP Investments we have a, a sole fiduciary duty to maximize return without undue risk of loss. That's our mandate. Yeah, and and we're here to invest the funds in the best interest of our contributors and beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. And every investment we make in the portfolio is is through that lens. Now, so if, if there's a green premium, we won't subsidize an investment mm -hmm. for a, a green premium. But we do believe, as I said earlier, that there is a tremendous investment opportunity. It's also why we're actually looking across the entire economy. Mm -hmm. It's why we're focusing quite a bit, too, on some of the harder to abate sectors, which do require a little bit more of rolling up your sleeves and trying to, trying to understand. So you know, to answer your question, I think we really look at everything through our mandate, and that is to maximize return without undue risk of loss. That's good. So Edwin, I want to ask you two questions. One is. I remember my dialogue with Larry Fink about seven years ago, and uh, how many people should be, you know, the uh, involved in this the sustainability or like a, you know, the ESG uh, activity of the BlackRock. I think at that time you had a probably 20, and then uh, we had an argument whether 20 is enough for the, you know, portfolio of the BlackRock, and. Uh, I wonder how it grow and how you know that's organized to uh, you know the uh, supervise your private or public uh, you know the uh, activities. That's the first question. And the second question is about you know coming back to my earlier question to the other people, other panelists. Like you know, as you are leading your alternative strategy of BlackRock, what do you think is the uh, the the best tool or best Monday to support the uh, like you know BP's transition? Uh, you know, to, to the sustainable, you know, the business portfolio. So of the 18,000 employees we have today, 18,000 of them are touching sustainability. It's, it's, That's a very good way to answer it. It's, it's, <laughs> it, it's so true. So if you look but at it. is so good at marketing. <laughs> I learned from Larry. Yeah. Um, but if you, so we interview our clients every single year, and I think this is an important point. Um, as of the beginning of this year, 88% of our institutional client community around the world said, as they review investments, E, when it comes to ES and G, is the most prominent thing they're trying to understand, mm -hmm. um, really comprehend how to take advantage of the opportunities, but also mitigate some of the risks. Mm -hmm. And with that in mind, as an organization where none of our assets are BlackRock's assets, mm -hmm. it's, it's our clients. Knowing that that amount of capital is really thinking about that, is, it's so incumbent upon us to be able to react to that need. And then I think this goes back to your other point earlier um, with regard to technology, data. It's better in public markets. It's still not perfect. It's awful in private markets. Right? There isn't a data source. There isn't a place to go to. Um, we happen to know BP very well. Uh, and Bernard and team and understand the strategy they're implementing. The whole notion of going brown to green is very real. Mm. And when you have strong leadership and a commitment to spend capital around that transition, you can see how that can happen. And I think with regard to how we try to support that, very recently you probably saw that with Aramco, which is one of the, the largest publicly traded equity company in the world, at a market value, I guess, around $2 trillion, 
we structured a $15.5 billion investment to take some of their natural gas business, 49% uh, of it private. But we did it for a couple of reasons, to inject new capital into an area where gas is really required to help with this transition. But as we think about how we work with these enterprises to make this satisfying to our clients, you have a guaranteed output at a floor on price for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so being able to introduce gas as a potential solution at a very cost-effective way for a very strong return for our clients. To us, this is how we're working with mm. public enterprises who are actually looking for private capital. When we think about the opportunity set, though, quite frankly, the, the biggest one across the globe for all of us really sits in infrastructure. Mm. Um, like the, the need there is tremendous. Now, albeit 12 years ago, we built very organically a renewable power capability, mm. which at the time, people thought you were crazy. Renewable power, wind and solar was such a very small, nascent part of the industry. It's now become one of the greatest catalysts as we go through this change and this transition. In fact, between now and 2050, there's about 26 trillion of additional investments that are required mm -hmm. to allow for this to happen. So this is an industry that's going to get great support. But it's really not all about power. It's, it's fascinating. Like in infrastructure, as we think about climate change, you think about it in, in a lens of decarbonization. You think about it through digitization and decentralization. Oh, three Ds. These are things that are easy to remember. <laughs> mm. But I say that because it's not all about power. And because the opportunity set to invest is so great, the decarbonization part we get. We mentioned mobility, EVs, batteries, charging stations, etc. That's really in, in play. Mm -hmm. And it's making a, a huge impact on the world we're living. When you think about um, the decentralization, if you think about solar, it's about now bringing close to the end user an ability to harness power as opposed to have to centralize it somewhere. Mm -hmm. So we've invested in the largest solar capability in the world to basically enable homes through much more resilient technology that have much greater longevity and much lower cost to harness tech, uh, energy that they haven't been able to in the past. Mm -hmm. So decentralization is making a very significant play. Um, and then digitization, this is understanding, this goes back to the data element. So in the UK recently, we made an investment with the UK government. We took a in support of the UK government's mandate to have within the next five to seven years, every home having a smart meter, every commercial enterprise having a smart meter. The reason they wanted that is to better understand, is the grid sufficient to support the enterprise that exists today in the United Kingdom? And if it is, how do they continue to modernize it? But importantly, as they think to the future, how do you build for the future to support industry in a very different way? Mm. And a private enterprise funding its ability to put smart meters in every single home in the United Kingdom to build a new energy grid is a really interesting opportunity that's measured over decades and, not, and then not in single years. So for us, we're thinking about multi-year investments within private markets, data is very sparse. Mm -hmm. So similar to CPPIB, similar to the rest, we have sustainable experts that sit with the investment teams mm -hmm. that ask the questions, E, 
ESG, yeah. understand the plan, look for complete transparency, but then using our technologies, try to bring that to life, even in the context of a private investment for our clients. Mm -hmm. And this is where the Aladdin climate technology for us, hopefully will be a game changer for our clients. You can now bring your public market exposure together with your private market exposure and understand the risks, but also the opportunities. So it's, um, it's a really big part for us. I, I think that uh, uh, it's fantastic. I mean, I think the, uh, the private investment can hold the key to really transform our you know, energy system. Uh, because on one hand, we have a big public company like oil and gas who have to trans, you know, transform their portfolio. But at the same time, we need to invest in the new technologies, which most of them can be uh, private. And uh, also, I have been wondering uh, why the, uh, the people like BP kind of like split into the green and the brown and that's kind of to attract more capital. But they, uh, I just, before going to you to, uh, to share with us what you are planning to just attract more capital or what kind of project are under finance. But I wanted to ask the Dan, because I, I know you have a lot to talk about the, uh, the infrastructure investment. So uh, as Edwin touched on the infrastructure, uh, how do you see the infrastructure investment opportunities? Um, similar to others, we think that's the biggest uh, piece of the pie and it's the hardest. Uh, and in most places, we're going from traditional to new. And the new often doesn't have an economic model. Mm. So I use the example that Edwin used a minute ago. They had a, a public service entity that could actually underwrite the model and give the incentives to the investor to actually invest. Uh, you make a return. Um, the challenge we have in almost all of the new infrastructure, the new technology, new whatever, there isn't actually a revenue model. right? Mm. And so it's an idea. It makes a lot of sense typically. But can you actually get it to work? You know, think about carbon sequestration is probably the best one, right? We've got some big, huge projects that would make a material difference in the world, and the math doesn't work. There's no math to work. And so going through that process of how do we define who underwrites that opportunity set and who gets that return and how safe is it, uh, or not safe, right? We can go to pure venture capital for a bunch of this stuff. That dynamic, I think, is going to be one of the biggest impediments. Uh, and we don't have a conversation today about that in the right way. On the small side, yes. Big scale side, very hard unless someone's willing to underwrite the change. And I think that to me is the, the piece that we're working on and watching today. And then how do we facilitate it? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, One of the things that BMO built is something called the BMO Climate Institute. Uh, and it was designed to put smart people in a room to have these kinds of conversations. Uh, and I think that's the real, uh, the real challenge. It was also designed for us to create uh, an advisory capability for our clients as they look at new ways to do things, as well as to advise us on how we should do things different. So very similar to others in, in, that, in that regard. Okay, thanks. So Julia, uh, which area you think uh, you know, is, is under finance or you know, that you need more investment? And uh, you know, um, I, I, I know you are responsible for the venture investment for the BP as well. So uh, if you could share with us, which is the opportunity and which area is under finance? Well, I think if you look at the overall numbers, right? Um, I think in 2021, the investment into uh, low carbon was around 1 trillion, and we just spoke to numbers that are 3.5 to 4, right? So I think there is, a, if we are to actually meet the Paris goals, there's an opportunity to accelerate across the board in terms of technologies. Um, we are not short, 
right, of, uh, of uh, financing opportunities. Um, and if I re react to your comment, if I look at what we are very much investing on in terms of transitioning technologies, um, a lot of the investments that we're actually doing and the businesses that we're aiming to build as transition growth engines are not really dependent on long-term subsidies, right? So if I think about it as an example, um, bioenergy, right? We've announced the name to actually grow our bioenergy portfolio to 100 KBD. We've announced that we're actually launching three for fit-for-purpose biojet SAF plants and converting up to two refineries to biorefineries. Uh, we have a biogas business in the U.S., which we're looking at expanding in, uh, in Europe. That business is actually extremely attractive today. And if anything, you know, the aviation business would actually love to get more SAF volume. What's missing is actually supply today. And the limitation to that business in the long term is actually going to be sustainable feedstock availability. If I look at the second vector, EV mobility, um, we were planning on a acceleration of EV mobility in Europe within, you know, with a trajectory which was in line with a Paris consistent trajectory, it's going three times faster. We've actually deployed, we've doubled the amount of EV charges that we have globally uh, with a significant share of those in Europe. And with a 30% utilization, those charges are already positive in terms of a big dot. Um, if I think about um, renewables, similarly, right, I spoke to 600 to 750 gigawatts a year required to actually drive the energy transition. We've already, in the last two years, grown our pipeline from 6 gigawatt to 24.5 gigawatts. So my point is, for the transition to actually come into play, yes, there are technologies such as hydrogen, green hydrogen, which will require, and blue, by the way, which will require subsidies to accelerate pickup of the transition. But it's exactly what we saw happening with renewables and other technologies as they actually mature and gain scale. But there are a bunch of technologies today which have existing latent demand, and what we need to do is actually work on driving that demand while delivering supply. So we are not short of availability of, availability of projects to invest. We're not short of capital being offered to us to actually invest in those, yeah. uh, in those opportunities. And I think the biggest challenge is just aligning stakeholders and driving execution at pace. See. I think that interesting, interesting you said like, you know, you have enough capital to, you know, the finance those projects. And yeah. uh, I think the, uh, the financier is, uh, can finance the project in a developing countries, particularly like in Africa, through the, uh, the corporate credit. But, um, you know, the in Glasgow, the, we announced the G Fund, which has the, uh, the 450 institutions committing to net zero, and aggregated asset under a management is the, uh, the reaching $130 trillion. Sounds enough, but the reality is less than 10% of that capital is currently allocated to the developing countries. But OECD estimate uh, that all the money necessary for us to make the world net zero two-thirds of that capital should flow into developing countries. And obviously, it's very far away from the current, the current status. So uh, except for the, uh, you know, investing into or supporting uh, the BP to do the, uh, the project in developing countries, 
You know, do you have any idea that we can promote a more, a more shift more capital into those developing countries? Because that's the one question coming from the audience is also asking why we don't have enough investment into Africa, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. So, if we want to pick up on this, sure. Um, I mean, so so we did build um, this climate finance partnership with um, Macron and Merkel when she was in seat. Um, I think this is a really interesting structure for government policymakers, no different than enterprises, saw an opportunity to bring new technologies to transition old technologies to this new world. The reality, though, is in emerging economies, you're taking on a different level of risk. Mm. Um, and so as people try to comprehend what is that risk, for us, this climate finance partnership, I think it's the second largest fund created of public and private partnerships to infuse this capital, predominantly actually, it's all emerging economies, but very significant amount of it actually in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, now they're moving from burning bunker fuels to potentially moving to wind and solar. What the French and German government saw in BlackRock was well over a decade of experience in building and developing these projects, now taking that experience and bringing it to these emerging economies. I think the hesitancy is around risk, the hesitancy is around the transparency, closeness and proximity to these assets and these projects. Um, and this is where actually in this case, these policymakers and these governments created a catalytic capital mm. and allowed for if there and should there be a loss, they would be those who would be taking the loss on set investments. Mm. So trying to incentivize others to come with and bring forth their assets to invest in and the de-risking the investment. Yeah. De-risking the investments, exactly okay. right. I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the future. I see. Uh, the reality is we don't think you'll need that catalytic capital. We don't think you need to de-risk it. It's just going to take time to introduce this to these new geographies that will require a whole set of different regulation, permitting, et cetera, as you build into it. So for infrastructure, it's very real. It is, it is an emerging need, yeah. not just an OECD developed economy's need. Um, but that's an example of one where, albeit $700 million of capital was raised, which if you think about it is small relative to the tens of billions that are being raised for developed economies. There is a catch-up that's required. I see. Yeah. The jump maybe? Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and we have investments in the renewable space in Brazil, in India. They're big economies. There's scale. They're, there's a history there. And, and so we have investments. Uh, we don't have a lot of investments in outside of those two, two big uh, geographies. And I completely agree. I think the path is there's going to have to be public-private partnerships. Um, but it's going to have to be risk-sharing and, and even um, to, to attract private capital entities taking that first loss piece. Um, providing cheap financing, cheap debt is not the path forward. I think people really need to see that de-risking. I see. Don, you want to say something or we can move on to that? Right? No, that's fine. Okay, great. So we have two minutes left. So uh, I promise with the, the panelists, I'm going to ask one question uh, to, to wrap up this panel discussion, which is, which industry or which you know the which industry or which the uh, the region, whatever the way you put it, you see the opportunity because this is the panel is about opportunities. So uh, maybe starting from Raymond. Fine, I'll be quick because we have a minute and a half. Um, Chris, I don't know if you could put the the second slide on, uh, just to, just to add some visual impetus to this. But but for me, it, it's it's picking up on your point in emerging markets. Um, 
when we look at emerging market sovereigns and corporates, their degree of preparedness right now relative to developed markets is completely different. Uh, we're looking at um, a fraction of the index in terms of corporates which are ready and have a credible plan to net zero. For me, that's not a reason to choke financing off regions and corporates which need it the most. It's actually the complete opposite. It's where we should be channeling that financing, knowing that we can influence that transition with very, very tangible engagement. So emerging markets, fixed income, which is also lagging equities, that's where I'd be going, but of course I'd say that. Great, Raymond. I'll give you first opportunity. <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, listen, I, I joined BP two years ago to help the company get to net zero. So, I mean, you know what my answer is going to be. I wake up in the morning thinking about energy transition. I go back to bed thinking about energy transition, which admittedly might be a bit depressing. Um, but yeah, I think to me what I wanted to say is when you think about energy transition, it is not just a technical energy piece. It is a whole ecosystem that needs to change. It's the implication for transport. It's the implication for industry. It's the implication for the financial services system. Um, it's the implication as for us in our use of energy, and it's the implication for the way we think about policymaking. So I think it's a you know, reductive term, but it's that whole transition for me. Thank you. Dan? I think your time. <laughs> no, you can talk. Um, but if, so I, I would have said uh, emerging energy sources. So hydrogen's a great example. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to see it's got a natural replacement, especially if we can get uh, a, a transferal carbon price in the marketplace. Uh, if we can get that in place, uh, that, uh, that opportunity is going to be spectacular. Okay. Raymond, quick. Edwin. Um, oh, sorry, Edwin. <laughs> so maybe really quickly, people have mentioned energy. Digitization is a huge part of this transition. Uh, and usually the more capital intensive the industries are, the less capital is actually flowing yeah. into them. And I think that's where you actually do see some of the greatest amount of opportunity. Don't be shy of the capital intensity, but as you transform these economies, there's an extraordinary investment opportunity there that is somewhat still to be tapped. So green and digital, as John mentioned earlier. So John, all right, very quick, exactly. uh, I think interesting mining. mining. Copper, nickel, cobalt, uh -huh. lithium, magnesium. We don't have enough. Yeah, we need those to make a battery. Yeah. Make a battery. All right, so we are running out of town. So thank you very much, and then give uh, your hands to these distinguished speakers. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, and we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. This is not intended to serve as a complete analysis of every material fact regarding any company, industry, strategy, or security. This presentation may contain forward-looking statements. Investors are cautioned not to place undue reliance on such statements as actual results could vary. This presentation is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not intended as an endorsement of any specific investment product or service. 
Individual investors should consult with an investment, tax, and or legal professional about their personal situation. Past performance is not indicative of future results.